can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction. Welcome to the first Football Insiders podcast. It's a, it's a podcast which is a home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. But before we dive straight into talking with our first guest, I'll take a few moments to explain what we're doing and why. In these socially isolating times in in which we're all adjusting to yet another new normal, we want to reach out to football fans, particularly those who love to think and read about all aspects of the game, and talk to some authors, writers, readers and thinkers. As many of you all know, we had to cancel this year's or the Football Writers Festival scheduled for May. So in a sense, this Football Insiders podcast will bring the festival and even more, we hope, to you. Each week, we'll have a chat with a special guest, hopefully as if we're just having a cup of coffee, uh, which Trevor and I have done a few times. <laughs> I'd, be, uh, I'd be having a long black with a cold milk on the side and a bit of banana bread. So I hope you enjoy listening to what's about to come. Now I want to introduce you to our first guest who is actually much more practiced and much more skilled than me in talking to people over a medium such as this, and that's Trevor Thompson. Trevor has reported on football in Australia since the 1980s, working for the ABC, covering the National Soccer League, World Youth Cups, countless qualifying tournaments of the Socceroos and others, the 2006 and 2010 World Cup. He wrote and presented a weekly program on Australia and Asian football. He's also been a freelance contributor to BBC's Radio 5 Live, CBS Radio, Radio New Zealand, and he was the former chief of staff in the ABC's Sydney newsroom for 10 years. He's also the author of two books. One Fantastic Goal was published in 2006 about football in Australia, and you can probably think about what that goal is. But more recently, for Fair Play Publishing, Playing for Australia, the first Socceroos, Asia and World Football. Trevor was born in England, which you'll hear from his lovely accent, and spent the Saturdays of his childhood watching Newcastle United at St James's Park. Trevor, welcome. Very great pleasure to be here. So first things first, how are you dealing with social isolation? Ah, well, I'm not sure I'm dealing with it all that well. I am going a little bit stir-crazy, but the garden's got a bit more attention than it has for quite some time, and I'm doing a bit of reading and, yeah, trying not to go completely around the twist. Well, let's pick up on the reading because, after all, that's what we're here for, (laughs) for reading and books. What are you reading right now? Well, I've made a big effort this year to try to read more fiction. I read a lot of stuff about history and about football and uh, politics and uh, all sorts of things of a, a current affairs nature. I've been a journalist, as you've mentioned, for a very long time. So I think it's fair to presume I'm a bit of a junkie on the news and current affairs front. So I, I continue to do that. But sometimes I get a bit self-conscious about the fact that I don't take my head into a completely different space and uh, read stories that are written by people who are inventing the world all the time in fiction. And so I've tried to do a bit more of that. Um, I've sort of got themes that I follow when I read fiction, I think, which is about um, creating new worlds and addressing questions of identity. So 
I'll do a bit of that. So this is my uh, typically long-winded way of coming into telling you that I've got a, a couple of books on the boil at the moment. Uh, the one that I'm reading right now is um, a book called The Runaways by uh, Pakistani author um, Fatima Bhutto, uh, who's related, of course, to the quite closely to the the Bhutto's that uh, were running Pakistan. But again, that's about people moving around the world, inventing new worlds for themselves, and of course, being molded by their experience and what they bring with them, which you know is something we all do. And as you've mentioned, uh, yeah, I'm an immigrant, the same as you know half the country, and you are, whether you like it or not, ever going to be uh, molded by your past. I certainly am, and that's kind of why I've got this interest in football and history and notions of identity. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because, it, it, in fact, one of the things that uh, struck me with uh, with the, the books that the book that you mentioned and and just knowing you as I do, what does interest you? Uh, it is a very much a common theme or almost a leaf motive to your life. Um, and that is the issue of individually and collectively, what is our place in the world and how do we fit in and, and how do we adjust and all of those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, particularly the transition around the migrant experience and the refugee experience. It also runs through your book, Playing for Australia. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about your fascination with the, with this idea? I mean, you, you said it's about new, a new world and, and forging identities. Um, what is it? Is it your personal experience um, as being a migrant that got you into this, or is it something much broader and deeper? I think it's uh, definitely part of the uh, personal experience in the first instance. Yeah, arriving in the country, not really knowing what to expect, not knowing uh, how the place is going to treat you, uh, is. Yeah, kind of bewildering and a little bit frightening as well as being an exciting challenge in a way. So where do I fit in here? Uh, and, of course, at first you don't fit in at all, but somehow you do find a spot and you influence the people around you and maybe they change a little bit as well. So that's the personal experience. But Australia's football life, going way back to the 19th century, has always dealt with this question of who are we, what are we doing here, uh, and how do we make a way forward from being uh, British immigrants who were keen to impress their friends back in England with what they'd done, going back to the 1880s and, and beyond, uh, through to a relationship with the Football Association. Australia was the first country as a foreign country, uh, in inverted commas, to deal with the Football Association. You know, the, the, the FA's uh, history of itself, which it published in 1950s, early 1950s, uh, talks about uh, responding to the Anglo-Australian uh, uh, Association as being the first interaction with football in another country, which made the FA feel like it was international rather than just something in Britain. Uh, so it goes right back to those days. But the bit that uh, fascinates me is the early association of Australia with Asia in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, when we had in the 1920s arguably the most active international football team in the world, played an enormous number of games against all sorts of opposition, uh, much of, uh, most of them from Asia. It's the only country in the world that sent its national team to Asia. So it was part of the mix 
of what, how we thought about the world. We're still very British. It's hard to exaggerate just how British Australia is in those days, including in football. But it was a world which incorporated notions beyond Britain. And we've got this little habit of telling part of our story, which is true, but ignoring other parts of the story, which give it much more context. Uh, I still think we do it now in the way that we talk about where we fit in, in the way that we talk about um, yeah, the, the whole conundrum of uh, uh, old soccer, new football, to, to use that expression. Uh, the way that people, you've got a generation of young football fans now who are nostalgic for a world that they never experienced. Yeah, they talk in a nostalgic way about the values of the clubs that played in the NSL and, and in the competitions which preceded the NSL from yeah, the 50s onwards, community clubs, uh, which are romanticised, I feel, rather too much. It's not to say that they're, uh, their, their feelings about their clubs, their communities and the inspiring values and the, that community feeling is invalid in some way. Everything they say about that is right, but it's only a bit of the story. There's so much of that that's left out as well. Which gets us to one of one of the things. I mean, there has been, um, when you talk about so much of the story is left out, uh, we, people have tended to look at football in recent times. I mean, we we talk somewhat dismissively, I guess, of, of people who started following the game in 2005 or 2006. And, I mean, my personal view is the more people that follow the game, the better. So it doesn't matter when they got into it. But there's, there's sort of chunks of history. There was NSL, then there was the 2005 and six era. But, I mean, as you say, your book Jake, takes us way back before that uh, and our engagement with Asia, which I'll, I'll come back to. But the other bit too is is the the number of history books that have been written in recent times. I mean, we've got Roy Hay, Ian Sice, and uh, Joe Gorman to a lesser extent, Peter Kunz, um, yourself, uh, Andrew Howe, and Greg Werner with the Encyclopedia of Socceroos and Matildas. There are there are a number, and even if you look at the very early. Um, sort of player bios or, or uh, coach bios such as Raleigh Rusic, Frank Farina, Robbie Slater, they all contained an historical narrative in addition to their personal stories. What do you think are the good and bad bits of the wave of football history publications? Well, it's fantastic that ordinary people's stories are told and there are people available to learn about them. You know, ordinary people are not obscurities in some way. We are this incredible family of uh, football people all around the world, not just in Australia, and that's millions of people, and we've all got these stories to tell. It's great to learn about everything from a, a, a small club through to you know, the big picture of Australia playing at the World Cup, for instance. I think it's it's marvellous. Uh, poor things, I'm, I'm not really sure I can really uh, get into something which is a negative, but I think... That interconnectedness of people all around the world is such a fabulous thing that it still kind of irritates me that we tend not to think about the the team on the other side, as it were. So that uh, when we're talking about and this you know, was loomed large for me when I was writing playing for Australia, that we can talk about players, teams, tours, you name it, from the Australian side of things. But we'd never paid any particular attention to the guys who were lining up on the other side of the pitch. What were they doing? They were often teams and countries and players that were in a similar stage of development to us, 
but we never paid any attention to what it was that they were doing and what kind of paths they were looking at to advance themselves in the world. Uh, you only have to look at the, the Chinese teams, which did amazing things in the 20s and 30s. The, the scene in the Dutch East Indies uh, was, was also you know, volatile and exciting and full of players with interesting experiences, Chinese players, Javanese players, speak from all over the place. And they were, they were, they tossed in their, their, their values with, uh, FIFA and international competition. And they ended up going to the Olympics and playing in the, the World Cup. But we didn't. Uh, perhaps if we paid more attention to their culture and what, how they were handling their situation, we might have had a better path forward. Instead of going the English way, <laughs> as we yeah, did for well, so long. Or maybe incorporating them both if we could. Of course, uh, such was the tension between the two organizations, FIFA and FA, that, uh, you know, that probably wasn't possible. But, you know, there was an, another organization, which is the YMCA, but, you know, never really recognized. That was the real generator of international competition in, uh, in Asia. Uh, they invented the East Asian Games, the Far Eastern Games, as it's also known. Uh, yeah, there were, there were plenty of other alternatives, but we didn't get into it and we weren't sophisticated enough to understand. And we got all of our information on, a, well, nearly all of our information about international football from the FA in London, who didn't tell us anything. Yeah, um, just just going, I mean, you mentioned about some of the the people on the other side, some of the players on the other side and what was happening Elsewhere, particularly around our region, um, you write quite extensively in the, in your book, Playing for Australia, about one particular player who you consider to be one of the greatest players of that time who visited Australia and had quite a bit to do with Australia. Um, do you want to talk about him? I, I presume that you're referring to Lee Wai Tong, who's uh, yes, just I a am. <laughs> fantastic uh, identity, uh, played at the Far Eastern Games for China. Uh, you know, China was basically the South China Club representing China at the Far Eastern Games on Osaka in Japan. He was a bright new star, 17-year-old who'd come into the team, uh, scored a hat-trick against Japan in the final game of the tournament. A few months after that tournament, a Chinese team toured Australia, and he was the undoubted star. Fantastic player uh, who had a long, long career. He didn't stop play. This was 1923. He didn't stop playing until the, the late 1940s. But in his career, he was the captain of China, played, played on two tours in Australia, 23 and 27. Um, and, you know, I, I could pick a few dot points out here, which is that he ended up being the, uh, the, a women's coach. He coached the, uh, the, the Chinese nationalist China women's team. He coached in Taiwan and Hong Kong after the war, after the revolution. Um, but he also was the person who founded the Asian Football Confederation, became the Chinese, uh, well, became the, uh, a vice president of FIFA in, in doing so. As the head of the, um, uh, of, of the AFC, he was the person who first considered the first application from Australia to join the AFC, which is in the late 1950s. And although he personally supported the application and was very interested in Australia, um, uh, he came here as a coach in the early 50s and, you know, with a, with a club side, uh, although, you know, nobody really uh, acknowledged very much of this at the time. He supported Australia's bid, 
but it was determined that because Australia wasn't an Asian country, the application couldn't properly be considered. When Australia finally got to play a World Cup qualifier in 1965 against North Korea in Phnom Penh, the FIFA match commissioner was Yi Tong. So that was, it was, uh, yeah, what is that? It's 40-year association almost with with uh, Australia's interests. With Australia. He's, he's one of the most influential people in football history in Asia. He had a strong interest and connection with Australia and people in Australia don't know who he is. That's kind of the result of us not taking uh, a, a proper interest in the people who are our football comrades, if you like, on the pitch and off the pitch. Uh, and that's, uh, he, what a, what a fantastic identity he would have been to, to have a conversation with. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if anyone such as James Johnson is listening to this podcast, um, maybe that's someone we should think about uh, honouring in some, one way or the other. Well, um, you know, I mean, imagine if we had been... Imagine if we'd been a member of the Asian Football Confederation since 1956 rather than, you know, 50-odd years later, 60-odd years later. Just on the question of commemoration, it's a, it's a really interesting one. You know, when I go, uh, when I used to go to the you know, now-demolished Sydney Football Stadium and walk past the statues that are built there of, you know, rugby league identities, basically, it occurs to me that, you know, that little zone, which included the Sydney showground, um, if you're going to build a statue of a football person, that, in my uh, fabulous imagination here, in my uh, best of all worlds, I'd have Judy Masters and Lee Wai Tong. There's a famous picture of them both shaking hands at the Sydney showground before the start of the first match of the Chinese tour where 47,000 people came to the ground. That would be something worth commemorating. And the uh, the centenary of that event is, is only, what, you know, two or three years away. That sounds like something that's worth looking at, Trevor. And I, I know you're, uh, you and others, uh, including myself, are very passionate about commemorating some of those anniversaries that are, are coming upon us in the next few years and, and beyond over the next decade and a half or so. Um, one of the other aspects that, of your book that is, is fascinating is, is firstly the relationship between the state federations, <laughs> so much so that you realise that it hasn't actually changed that much, um, particularly with a, a, the idea of a national association, but also the boom and bust cycles of the game, which brings us to a broader point. Do you think Australia's football history is unique and are we forever doomed to go through boom and bust cycles? That's a great question. I wish I had an instant snap my fingers answer for you. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, is Australia Australian story unique? Yeah, because it's the only one that's Australia's. Um, that's not to say that it doesn't have comparisons with other countries. Of course, other people have been through, you know, strange paths to the present day. But our story is, first of all, pretty much longer than everybody else's. If you think back to those uh, ancient roots, if you like, of people playing yeah, in the 1870s. And, of course, you can get into endless debates about what appropriate uh, starting dates are. I'm, I'm less less bothered about you know, hammering down a date for a particular event other than to say that you know, in a particular time, things originated. And my starting point as, a, as somebody who's interested in international football is 1877 when a Sydney man in the form of uh, Arthur Savage play, who became Australia's first international. He, was, he played for England when he was playing for Crystal Palace uh, in, in London. So it's a unique story. 
uh, and whether we're whether we're uh, forever condemned to this kind of boom and bust, I think that I'm not sure that that's quite the way to put it. But I think so long as we have a structure which has yeah a, a colonial setup still, and that's how I see your know, states and regions and territories all. Uh, going their own directions uh, a lot of the time about how they should organise football, it's going to be very, very difficult to get a unified sense of purpose and everybody happening in the same direction if we're obsessed with a structure which only exists because it was inherited by the people before and existed for you know reasons of um, proximity and local control going back to the 19th century. But, uh, you know, I could go on forever about that because I think that's uh, – a problem with the federal political system in Australia anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it is a much bigger issue for Australia, but it certainly had an impact on football over many years as well. Um, what you mentioned at the outset too, just going away from football for a bit, you mentioned that you're a news junkie, which is not surprising considering you've been a journalist for so long and you, you were chief of staff of the ABC newsroom. What do you think of news nowadays? I mean, it, it, even today, I noticed. I noticed. Uh, I mean, we we tend to always know that tabloids push an agenda, but of course, there are those who say the broadsheets push agendas as well. Um, do you think that's a fair observation? And what what do you actually think of the standard of journalism at the moment? That's that's probably a, a very general question, but um, it'd be interesting to see how you feel about it. I think that standards probably haven't changed that much. I know that's uh, probably an unfashionable view, but I think that what happens now is that there's so many more uh, windows of opportunity for people to attack uh, journalism uh, that the criticisms, even if they're unjustified or not really all that justified, tend to get a lot of space. I think that I know how hard journalists work to get it right, and I don't, uh, I don't uh, dismiss people who work for organisations that clearly have their own uh, objectives and biases. Uh, you know, uh, uh, having a sort of polemic attached to journalism, I think, is is doesn't disqualify you from being regarded as a serious writer or commentator. Um, so I think the the standards are, uh, you know generally in the news domain at least, um, not bad, pretty good in fact. But I think there's a lot of commentary, which everybody's gotten into in the last, you know, 15, 20 years and even more so in the last five or ten years, uh, which is, you know, it's uh, attention-seeking first of all. So my ability to outrage you is going to have uh, a higher premium perhaps than my ability to inform you. And I think that's kind of what's uh, distorted so much coverage of news events. It's, uh, yeah, I, I suppose my my own tastes are still uh, the ones that I've carried with me for quite a long time. So that, you know, mainstream kind of uh, places like, well, the ABC, where I used to work, and uh, other things like The Guardian or The Australian for that. I mean, The Australian still has some really great stuff in it, even though there's plenty of things in there that, you know, I can't stand uh, as well. Um, BBC and New York Times and, you know, those sorts of outlets, they 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 interest me as well. Um, the more... Um, Washington Post. 
Uh, I've tended not to go there, not because I dis- have a distaste for it in any way, but just because I just happen to, you know, have not wandered into that domain too often. Um, the kind of, uh, uh, well, conspiracy theory, uh, you know, tin hat wearers, uh, don't interest me at all other than for some kind of car crash style, you know, uh, guilty amusement for one of a better expression. Uh, there's a lot of people who look at all that stuff and take it seriously, and that that uh, just bewilders me. And and it's fed by social media as well. <laughs> um, yes. We're probably getting, yeah we're we're getting to the um, pointy end of of this first podcast, and I, I'm going to ask two questions, which I will ask absolutely everyone who comes onto these podcasts. And <laughs> okay. the first one is first one is for these socially isolating times and. When you are allowed to have your first guests back for dinner, if you could have any five guests in the world, who would they be? Uh, this is you could pick five, and you could keep picking five, and yeah, end up with fifty, and um, that that all be pretty good uh, dinner groups, I think. I've thought about this question, and I've I've got five. So trying to represent different areas of my life, I suppose, and interests. So I've got on my little list uh, Pedro Almodovar, the film, the Spanish filmmaker who's made so many films, all of them great, uh, never made a film that I didn't like. He's just teams with ideas and yearns to be free at all times, even if that means, you know, being offensive to people. Uh, you know, fabulous, interesting character. From the world of politics that we've just been kind of discussing, I'm really interested in Jacinda Ardern. I think she's brought a kind of um, different approach to politics and ideas which casts aside some of the worst bits of uh, machismo that's uh, mistaken for something we call leadership, and that's been tremendously refreshing for me. There's got to be a footballer there, hasn't there? So I picked uh, uh, Diego Maradona, <laughs> probably the best player. That would be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. And the bit that I, yeah, he's got so many things you could ask him about. There was that bio- biographical movie out uh, a little while ago, which was great to watch, but again, had bits of the story which I would have loved to have seen addressed that weren't there. One of the things that uh, I'd love to talk to him about is the Australia-Argentina games from, you know, way, way back, when was that, 93, um, and how his boss at the AFA, Julio Grondona, uh, managed to pull the strings to make sure that there were no drug tests for any players in, in those two matches. Um, well, it did, did Maradona a bit of good there, but not... Not when, when he got to USA 94, of course. Um, closer to home, uh, I, uh, Joseph Tadros, who's the an Ud player, a fantastic identity, who uh, is a, just a brilliant musician. And I saw him play um, a couple of months ago in Marrickville, uh, you know, not, not all that far from where I live. And he was spellbinding as a musician. But if he decided to just leave the Ud in the case, on the side of the stage and talk and stare with funny stories, I think I would have been just as happy. Tremendously funny guy. Uh, great storyteller. Just tremendous entertainment. We saw you him never, too. Yeah, well, he's he's, he's, a, he's an amazing character. On the night that I saw him, his brother James, who's an amazing uh, percussionist, um, got his girlfriend up onto the stage and proposed to her in front of the rest of us. Uh, it's an interesting <laughs> Very interesting uh, <laughs> note for the night, yes. Um, 
And my fifth guest is uh, Marcia Langton, uh, incredible uh, uh, academic and uh, expert on uh, Indigenous politics and culture. Uh, when I was a very young journalist, I uh, once uh, worked in Alice Springs when she was working there. In fact, we were in the same house. Her office, uh, it was converted by people in the house, uh, so that I could uh, stay there. So I, I lived in her office for four or five weeks. Um, embarrassed to think now about how little I knew about Indigenous politics and culture, but I had the rare privilege of um, some very educational conversations in the living room over the, over the course of that month or so. Amazing character um, and always with a different perspective on Australian life. Yeah, she is a marvellous person, isn't she? I, I had the pleasure of meeting her or the privilege of meeting her many, many years ago, a bit like you. I was, I was very young and working in the Commonwealth Health Department on our first national HIV AIDS strategy and, and Marcia Langton was part of um, a group that was advising on what to do in Indigenous communities about HIV AIDS. And, and I'm talking back in the late 80s when we really didn't know much about it. And, and she, but she's, she's not only a wonderful person but also fiercely intelligent and, and um, we could all learn a lot from her. Um, so that's a marvellously eclectic group, I'd have to say, and I, I think uh, Diego Maradona would <laughs> <laughs> probably be amazing. Um, well, if, if things get a bit sticky, we can just ask Joseph Tadros to get the oud out and give us a couple of tunes. Exactly, and I have to say too, you can't, just to bring football back into it, Julio Grondona, who you mentioned, who was the long-term president of the Argentine Football Association, um, he's now deceased and he was also the senior vice president of FIFA at the time the um the vote for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups took place. So the superseding indictment, which came out from the US Department of Justice yeah. on the 7th of April, um, has him his his indictment, which we earlier knew about, updated again. So I just put that there. Um, in terms of him being able to twist arms, the second question is. We're going to compile a football insiders playlist um, to help people get through these times. So, tell us a piece of music you're listening to. Uh, this is a tricky one because I I'm very uh, in and out with music. I've got sometimes some uh, a record or a song that I've uh, liked in the past pops into my head. It occupies a space for you know for no particular reason. It just seems to self select from the, my memory. I've got an old um, colleague, work colleague, who's a uh, very, very good journalist, but he's also doubles as a uh, guitar player in various bands. And he was playing last year in a REM covers band, um, which did this national tour. They played a, an REM set. Uh, I was never into REM in a huge way, but I, I was when I went to the gig, I was sort of reminded about how many songs that I knew and liked. Uh, and so it was, yeah, pretty big night and, yes, yeah, a bit of a thrill to see my friend on the stage playing her. So, yeah, REM has uh, popped itself into my head in recent times uh, and maybe for these times when we're a little bit down on the dumps in our own, uh, in our own houses, I nominate uh, shiny happy people from REM as being something that uh, might, might remind us that about optimism and fellow feeling for the people that we uh, love and care about as valuable and worth celebrating. 
Well, that's, that's a lovely note, if you'll excuse the pun, to end up on, and we'll, we'll certainly take out the program in that. But that's it for the first episode of Football Insiders. We hope you've enjoyed listening. I'd like to thank Trevor. It's always fascinating to speak with you, Trevor, and no doubt I suspect we would have had two rounds of coffee if we could go on even longer. Um, if you want to read a really good football book, such as Trevor Thompson's Playing for Australia, please head to fairplaypublishing.com.au and, and look out for Play On magazine, which is coming out towards the end of this month. In the meantime, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, sneeze or cough into your elbow, don't touch your face, and please don't go out at all if you're feeling even just a little bit sick. We close, as I said, with a brief excerpt from Trevor's choice of shiny, happy people. We'll be back next week with another Football Insiders podcast. Thanks for listening. Shiny. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.